Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are so glad you're with us. We're a Bible-based church from Ontario, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Him. In today's podcast, we're bringing part two of the We Are the Church series. And not only are we bringing it to you today, we're bringing to you with a legend Youth for Christ's uh, national director in Lebanon, Middle East, Maher El Haj. Uh, Maher is passionate about reaching youth and seeing them saved and discipled through uh, YFC's various ministries um, in Beirut. And he's a funny guy, great sense of humor, and I have no doubt that you are going to enjoy his message entitled, Thriving, Not Surviving. With that... Let's turn it over to Maher with part two of our series, Thriving, Not Surviving. Sabah al-khayr. Ana kteer mabsood kun maakun al-yom. Ili sharaf kun wa'if wa amshavik maakun min kilmet Allah. No Arabic? You told me I need to preach in Arabic. Bonjour. Comment ça va? Ça va bien? Très bien, très bien. No, I, I don't know how to preach in French. Can I, can I do English? Okay, I'll stick to English. It's a privilege to be back to Canada again, uh, where a lot of Lebanese live, a huge community all over Canada. So it's uh, like second or third home. Uh, if we're going to count Brazil, there is more Lebanese living in Brazil than in Lebanon. Six million Lebanese in Brazil, at least. In Lebanon, four million, barely. So, yeah, it's a tiny country. Also, I'm happy to be here because yesterday was my birthday, and it's the first time I celebrate my birthday in Canada. I turned, uh, I turned 35 or 45. It's the same thing, 45. I turned 45 yesterday, and I was expecting a special Canadian cake, you know, like a maple cake, if that exists. They gave me cheesecake, but it's fine. <laughs> cheesecake, maple cake, I'll, they all taste the same maybe. I don't know. So thank you for not butchering my name uh, like the Americans do. Um, so I'm Mahir Al-Hajj uh, from Lebanon, uh, the National Director for Youth for Christ. And it's a privilege to be here and share with you the Word of God. So Lebanon is not Lebanon, Ontario. Did you know that there's a Lebanon in Ontario? There's a Lebanon, Ontario. Google it and you'll see. It's not Lebanon, Pennsylvania or Lebanon, Indiana. There is a country called Lebanon in the Middle East. Show you on the map where it is. It's a small country, about four to four and a half million Lebanese, two, two and a half refugees. So it's the highest statistics in the world, uh, refugees to nationals. So for every two Lebanese, we have one refugee. If it's Syrian or Iraqi or Palestinian, we're... We have, we're a host for a lot of refugee community. I'm married to one wife. <laughs> because, you know, when they say an Arab, you think, you know, I have multiple wives and I ride on camels and stuff like that. But I have only one wife. Her name is Rachel, a good Arabic name. And we've been married for 15 years. And I have two beautiful uh, kids also with Arab names, Michaela and Timothy. So... Michaela is nine and Timothy is 12. If you figure it out, I'm the only Arab name in the family. 
we're not going to talk about this now. Uh, this is my staff. Uh, the wife's 11 on staff. We have 40 staff in uh, nine different departments. Um, majority Lebanese staff, some refugees, and some American missionaries. As usual, Tim knows that, uh, that they, they do all the work and we take all the credit. So uh, I'm grateful for that. But they're, they're a great, great team. This morning, uh, I would love to share with you from the book of Acts. Um, Acts 16, 16 to 31. And whatever I'm going to share, it's more from, from the Bible, but it's also from my experience in Lebanon and what we've been going through, at least for the last four years. Um, and I've given like a title for this sharing time sermon called Thriving, Not Just Surviving. A bit of a background uh, for the story we're going to read together is that uh, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy were on different journeys to preach the gospel wherever the Lord took them. And they tried to go several places, and the last one was in Asia, and the Spirit stopped Paul. And, uh, and Paul had a vision, a dream, about a guy telling him to come to Macedonia. And they end up in Philippi, which is in Greece nowadays. And as they go into Philippi looking for a synagogue where the Jews prayed, they couldn't find a synagogue, which means there's not many Jews. Not, you need to have at least 10 male Jews to be allowed to have a synagogue. So they didn't find one. So they started looking for the Jews, and usually they go worship near the river if there's no synagogue because they need water for rituals, cleansing ceremonies. So they get there, and they see a group of women there, and Paul shares the gospel with them. And Lydia, a businesswoman, uh, makes a decision to follow Jesus and all this, her household, and they get baptized. So the first convert in Philippi. And uh, the reading starts with Paul as he's heading again uh, another day to the place of prayer. And he says, We were met by a female slave who had the spirit by which the, she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners for fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. If I was Paul and I'm walking around every day towards the prayer place and I have a young girl following me around and shouting and yelling things, and she's wacko, it, it will drive me crazy. If it was in Lebanon, I would shoot her. But we can't say that in Canada. Uh, but I would get very upset. I would get very angry. And uh, it's a joke. So Paul, Paul did something else. He was more peaceful than me. Uh, and she kept this for many days. So he turned to her and commanded the spirit, the demon that's in this girl, to leave her. And immediately, the spirit had left her. It's incredible, the authority that Paul has uh, against Satan and his kingdom. Although this little girl was shouting and yelling things, that's, that's true. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. But sometimes, uh, and we see that in different religions and philosophies and even some cults or some churches that call them some churches, they have part of the truth. But, this, but they distract us for the main truth that's in Jesus. So she was shouting and yelling the truth, 
but she was distorting the truth or distracting the truth and giving attention more to whatever happening with her and the demon inside her rather than the gospel that Paul and the other disciples are trying to share with others. So he did the right thing. And he uh, freed the girl from this demon. And usually if, if we do something good for the Lord, we want a tap on the back. Good job. But the contrary happened. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They're in big trouble right now. They brought them before the authorities and said, These men are Jews and are showing our city, are throwing our city in a, into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And there was a bunch of crowd watching what's happening. Like a good crowd in the Middle East, they joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. So there's a bunch of people, men just running towards Paul and Silas and beating them up. And the officials ordered them, ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. They've been doing something good for the kingdom of God. And their reward is to be beaten up, to be flogged, to be stripped, and to be ending up in prison. So they put them into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them very carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. They were, they were still scared of Paul and Silas. They're still scared that they've done all of that and put them in prison, and they put them in the inner cell where it's like solitary confinement, where they put the worst criminals in there. And during uh, that time, it was a place where there is really thick air, no sunlight, very dark, very smelly, rats all over around. It was the worst place to be in jail. And not just only that, they've put them in stocks. A very uh, hard way to, to, to be the whole day sitting like that and all the pain in your, in your back and feet. It was very, very hard circumstance. And if I was Paul or Silas, I would be very upset. I would be very upset from God. I would be angry. I would be bitter. I would start complaining. Why, God, have you done this to us? We're your followers. We're following you. You told us to come here. We came here and we're preaching the gospel. And people are being saved and, and a girl has been freed from a, from a demon. Why are we? Why is this happening to us? Do we deserve this? I would have been very bitter. But Paul and Silas, they did things differently. The Bible says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Wow. So it's either a wow or they're crazy, one of them. And it reminds me of something that happened with me 20 years ago when I was 25. I served in the military service in Lebanon. It was mandatory back then where all males, uh, firstborn males, had to go to the army. And we had to serve for one year, two, two months and a half as a boot camp. And then they sent us to be in a different post in Lebanon to finish that here. And one day I was leaving my post in south of Lebanon and coming back home from Beirut uh, to Beirut. And I slept in the, in the bus that's taking me home. It's like a two-hour drive. And I'm, I was awakened by uh, the military police. They woke me up and they asked for my permit. Like It's a small paper that says 
I'm allowed to leave my post in the south and go back home. And I searched my pockets, my bag. I couldn't find it. And I knew I'm in big trouble. And they asked me to go down from the bus. They took me to the like, army base in, in Sidon, in the south. And they put... Uh, um, keep forgetting what it is. Handcuffs. Handcuffs. They put handcuffs, and I wasn't happy about that. And they started interrogating me uh, about half an hour to an hour. And they took away my eyeglasses without them. I wasn't putting lenses back then. I was blind. I couldn't see anything. And they threw me into a cell on my own, and they gave me a thin mattress and a very thin pillow. And me being very spiritual and biblical, said, what am I going to do now? Uh, let me do like Paul and Silas. And I started singing and worshiping, and I started praying, hoping that something will happen and a miracle will get me out of this prison. Rarely did I know that's not going to happen. And it was almost midnight, and I got so tired, and I'm like, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to be in prison for two or three days. Let's just sleep the night and rest. And as I'm trying to sleep, the jailer comes and shouts my name. And, uh, and he takes me to the high-ranking officer in that prison. And I couldn't see the guy because I'm as blind as a bat. Uh, but uh, he, he was shouting at them to, uh, to bring me a chair so that I can sit down. He said, do you want something? I said, I want my eyeglasses. They brought me my eyeglasses. He was saying, I hope... Uh, They've treated you well. They're, they're, you, you have what you need. I said, yeah, it's a five-star hotel. What can I tell you? <laughs> and he's like, do you want coffee? Do you want tea? And he was shivering as he was talking. For 15 minutes, he's trying to be very nice to me. He wants to offer me whatever I want. And I couldn't really understand what was going on. Until after 15 minutes, he's like, you know, um, your cousin called me about half an hour ago. My cousin was the second highest-ranking officer in the Lebanese army. And he called them because he's been searching for me. When my parents went crazy, they can't find me. I didn't come back home. So they were looking in all the hospitals in south of Lebanon. They couldn't find me. And my cousin got a smart idea. Let's look in the prisons. And they started calling every prison in the south until they got to the Sidon prison. And they found me there. So the army guy there was scared and terrified that, Maybe he's going to get in trouble. And he said, they're going to come to pick you up and they'll take you to your house. So it was quite an experience uh, that uh, I, I, I remember and, and I, I laugh about it sometimes. <laughs> so if we go back to the word of God, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And pay attention to the next sentence. And the other prisoners were listening to them. They had a captive audience, a group of prisoners that can go nowhere. And they can't even sleep because Paul and Cyrus are just worshiping and singing and praying. And everyone was listening to them. And this reminds me how much we have such a responsibility as uh, followers of Jesus. That people are watching us. Especially in time of crisis and trouble. Because when things are good, you know, we talk about Jesus, we talk, we love people, we talk about the joy and the peace and the hope we have in Christ and how much we, we believe in the words of God and, and his promises when things are great. We are all over the place, you know. But maybe when crisis hits us, 
personal crisis or a national crisis, what happens to us? Our close family members, relatives, neighbors, people we serve that don't know Jesus, they're watching us very carefully. The reputation of Christ is on the line. Our credibility as followers of Jesus that we live by the word is, uh, is on the line. Because they want to see, are we the same people in time of good and in time of crisis? So we have a big responsibility, a captive audience. When something goes wrong, people are looking for answers. And they might be looking at us. So we have an audience watching us as the body of Christ. Verse 26, it says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Huge earthquake. And this earthquake wasn't just, it happened to be. It was a divine one. Uh, Just uh, this coming last week, a huge earthquake happened in Morocco. More than 2,500 people passed away. A couple of months ago, a huge earthquake happened in Turkey, and it hit north of Syria, Aleppo. Thousands and thousands of people that have passed away. In Lebanon, we are passing through an earthquake, but it's not a real one. It's more a figurative one. And we've been dealing with many earthquakes since the end of the Civil War in 1990. The last one that really hit us was in October 17, 2019. It's when the Lebanese people were fed up with the corruption. Uh, 30 years of corruption by our politicians. They've been stealing all the money and the government just collapsed. Our economy just was done. Our Lebanese lira was 1500 to a dollar. It became 90000 to a dollar. Uh, all the banks went bankrupt. It's a disaster. So a huge revolution started. About a million people went down the streets, downtown Beirut, Kids stopped going to school, going, uh, no more university. There's like a civil disobedience. And a lot of people with their creativity, they had those posters in the demonstrations asking for the government to stop down. And the government was removed. And the people wanted a lot of change. And then the politicians used COVID as a way to stop the revolution and did lockdowns, and started scaring people, and you're going to get sick, and everybody will die, and so stay in your homes. And they tried to stop the revolution like that. It worked for a couple of months, and then people were like, yeah, it's just another flu. And people started storming the streets again, and the revolution took a huge push as well. Until a day that we never thought will ever happen uh, took place on August 4, 2020, the huge Beirut port explosion where half the city of Beirut was destroyed. It was the explosion of 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that was stored in the port, and it exploded. More than 200 people died. More than 7,000 people injured. 300,000 homeless. And more than $15 billion in property damage. It was a disaster. And uh, as Youth for Christ, we're not a humanitarian organization. We're not a compassion organization. We don't do relief. All our work is with young people. How can we uh, present the gospel to them in a very practical and relevant way? How can we disciple them? How can we connect them to a local church 
through our different ministries and centers. But when our center got hit, um, I'll show you the, 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 the map here. Uh, the explosion is the upper one up to the left. The red dot is where the explosion happened. Uh, the middle dot here is one of our youth centers. The dot red down there is our office. The blue dots is the house of our youth that we help fix. And the yellow dots are the houses of the staff we help fix. The area was a mess. Doors, windows, glass, everything was shattered. We stopped all our operation of youth work and we went down to the destroyed area and I told the staff we need to start visiting all the families of the youth we serve. And we started systematically going house to house, visiting uh, the families and checking on them and seeing the damage, assessing the damages and loving on them and praying for them. And we learned a big lesson that, yes, they are, um, they are grateful for what we've done, but they're waiting to see what we're going to do next. Are we, are we going to treat them like other organizations that come and treat them like numbers and take statistics? Or like others that would come and say, we'll pray for you, and they pray for them and never come back to help them? Or are we going to be different? And we were different. And we spent the next four months visiting people, assessing the damages, fixing the homes of the staff, of our youth. And the Lord did amazing work among these families. And we're talking about the vast majority of these families are Muslim families from the Sunni and the Shiite community. And when we finished fixing the homes, we felt how much there's so much trauma that was caused by this explosion. For the Lebanese youth that haven't experienced this before because they live, didn't live during the civil war, and for the Syrian refugee youth that were already traumatized by the war in Syria and they came to find refuge in Lebanon, and this explosion brought back all the trauma again. So we started partnering with churches and other like-minded organizations to do a lot of trauma intervention. And then because of the economic crisis, parents didn't have money anymore to put their kids in school. So we did a campaign to buy school supplies and to provide scholarships for, for the youth of our centers to continue their studies. And hundreds of families didn't have food anymore. They didn't have money to buy food. So we did a huge campaign feeding about 400 families every month, uh, providing food vouchers. Again, we are not a compassion organization or a relief organization, but we couldn't sit and do nothing because our credibility and the reputation of what we preached was at line. And they were all looking to see what we're going to do, if we're going to live the word of God really or not. If we go back to, to the passage, it says, was a huge earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. What an incredible opportunity to flee, to run away now. If I was Paul, that's what I would have done. First minute those doors are gone, the chains are loose, I will just run away for my life. But of course, Paul would, would do something different as usual. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And I'm sure the jailer would not have believed that. And he asked, uh, he called for lights. He rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. 
He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What an incredible question that any of us would wish to hear. So common. What should I do to be saved? And again, if I was Paul, I need between 30 to one hour to explain to them how to be saved. I start from the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament all the way to Revelation and in between sandwich it with the cross and the sins and salvation and all of that. One hour of sermon for this person to be saved. Again, Paul is an incredible theologian. He's the best. He's written more than half the Bible. He should, more than half the New Testament, he should have done that, right? But again, he didn't do that. He simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Such a simple statement. So direct. Just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And that's all the people that we were serving in time of crisis just needed to hear. They didn't need any Bible study or any sermon or or nothing. That will come later. When people are saved, you know, the Bible studies and the discipleship and the prayer groups will come later. But now they want to know why we do what we're doing. They are shocked that Christians are helping the Muslims. Other Muslims are not coming to help the Muslims. Why the Christians? What do they want in return? We just loved them and, and did everything without asking anything from them. And out of curiosity, they wanted to know, why are you different? Why are you helping us? And that's the incredible opportunity for us to share about our faith, to share that Jesus loves you and we love you too. And if you want to know about Jesus, let me tell you my story, how Jesus transformed my life. That's all they need to hear. And we have seen hundreds and thousands of youth and families come to the Lord in the last four years as we partnered with local churches and we're working hand in hand. We're helping with the youth ministry. They're helping with the adults ministry. And so many young people from Muslim families came to the Lord. And I feel very privileged to live in such time of crisis to witness such a thing. Two years ago, I took my kids to do uh, pottery. Uh, We drove for hours to get to a small village where uh, they teach them how to do pottery from, from clay. I don't know if you've done it before. And Timothy was 10 years old, and Michaela was uh, maybe 7 years old. And they were excited. They want to do something, a, a cup or a mug or a vase, whatever. They, they were excited. And Timothy jumped directly and started forming his own uh, cup made up of uh, clay. And he was very excited, and it turned out pretty nice for a 10-year-old. And now it was Michaela's turn, and she wanted to exactly do the same thing like her brother. And she failed miserably. And she started crying and crying and crying. And I tried to explain to Michaela, Michaela, you're the potter. You're creating something so beautiful. Even if it's not the same like Timothy, it's going to be different because you're creating something from nothing. You're molding this clay with your hands. It's your masterpiece. Something unique and beautiful for you. You've created it. And then she calmed down, and she did something that I still don't know what it is, but, <laughs> but she was happy with it. And it's a good reminder for us when we read from 2 Corinthians 4. 
4.7 where it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Because sometimes we say, but we are weak, we're not perfect, we're fragile, we, we're scared to share the gospel or to, or to live Christ at times with the people around us. Uh, but, but Paul is saying, we have this treasure, this salvation message, we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have beautiful, amazing gifts and talents that the Holy Spirit has given each one of us because we're followers of Jesus. And it's, it's in jars of clay that, yes, they are fragile, and they're fragile so that we don't become uh, pr- proud, that we stay humble, that whatever God is doing through us, it's, it's Him that He's doing. We're just this vessel that is, yes, very fragile. And God promises in verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despair in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We are the light of this lost world. We are the salt of the broken world. And God wants to use us. And it always brings to mind uh, when Jesus was walking on water, and the disciples were in a ship that's sinking and they were terrified. And maybe they were even more terrified because they saw him walking on water. But P- Peter had the guts, had the courage to walk on the water and to walk towards Jesus. He doubted and he started sinking. Because he removed his eyes from Jesus and concentrated on the waves. He concentrated on the problems, on the crisis in that moment. Forgetting that all this wave, all these trouble that's coming all over his head. The same water and trouble is under the feet of Jesus. I don't know what you're going through, and I cannot pretend that I know or I know the situation of living here in Canada or what's happening in your personal lives. But I trust in the Word of God and in the promises of God that He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And I believe that even though sometimes God will choose not to change the storm, not to change the crisis we are in, but for sure he's going to change our hearts. And he's going to transform us to be uh, different kind of witnesses so that whatever crisis we're going through as the body of Christ, we're going to be helping others that are going through the same crisis. Some of you maybe has come out of a crisis. Some of you are in a crisis. And eventually all of us will be in a crisis that will hit us. But how will we face it as a body of Christ? How will we face it as followers of Jesus? Do we run away? Are we scared? Do we doubt? Or we listen to Jesus that said to his disciples as he walked in the water, Fear not, it is I. Be courageous. And that's the role of the church today, is to be courageous, is to be ready, is to be equipped for any crisis that might hit the church or hit us in our everyday lives or hit us as a nation in Canada or Lebanon. The church needs to be ready and armed. And we need to be ready ready to be on the front lines 
to fight this war, the spiritual war that the Lord has called us to fight in the fallen world. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus and walk towards him with faith and courage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that gives us, um, gives us courage and strengthens our faith and ignites our passion and remind us, but remind us to our calling. Thank you, Lord, for Paul and Cyrus and the others that have um, went through hardships and lived it and, and came out of it victoriously so that, Lord, we can learn from them and be a witness for you, Lord, in our everyday lives, at work, at university, at school, and serving you among the community. Let your church, Lord, in this town be a beacon of hope and peace and joy. So, Lord, give us wisdom and strengthen us and guide us and lead us. For you didn't leave us as orphans. You're with us, and we're going to be victorious through you, Lord, and through your Spirit. I ask you, Lord, to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, that's it from us. Thank you so much for joining. Please stay connected with us. Be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's Pathway Church PTBO. Hey, God is at work in this world, and we feel so blessed that we get to be a part of what he is doing. Have a great day wherever you're at, and we hope to see you soon.